Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Entrepreneur Rx, where we help healthcare professionals own their future. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Entrepreneurs Rx. I'm your host, John Schupel. Today, I am excited to have Courtney Williams on the show. Courtney received a bachelor's degree from University of Arizona's Eller College of Management and an MBA from Arizona State's University's Thunderbird School of Global Management. She's also worked closely in the local startup community, including U of A Center for Innovation, Startup mm-hmm. Tucson's former Thrive Program, Bio Industries Organization of Southern Arizona, and the Venture Ready Program with the Arizona Commerce Authority. Courtney comes at healthcare entrepreneurism in a little bit of a tangential way. She was not into healthcare throughout her education and came into it because of her sister's high-risk pregnancy. Courtney, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you. Thank you so much for having me, John. So where are you located right now? Right now, I am in Tucson, Arizona. Is it raining down there? Because it's raining and cold up in Phoenix. We got a lot of rain last night and this morning, but it's cleared out now. It's short-lived always. You know, I'm laughing. I say it's kind of cold and it's 64 degrees. So everybody in the Midwest and Northeast are like, yeah, whatever, dude. Definitely. Well, it's cold compared to 110 for 31 consecutive days and nights. So yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I'm excited to have you on it because you've got a really cool background and past. So let's start with your background. Give us a sense of how you got to where you are, and then we'll talk about where you are. Sure. Yeah. So I'm originally from Arizona. I went to undergrad at U of A. I've got my bachelor's from from Eller College of Management, had a minor in French. As soon as I graduated from U of A, I actually uh, did an internship in Ghana. So I went to West Africa right after graduation and learned about entrepreneurship. I actually served as a business trainer for a group of entrepreneurs in a Google-sponsored program for entrepreneurship all across the country of Ghana. And that taught me so much. Then took a hard turn and moved to California and worked for a Fortune 500 for a few years there. And I was like, well, I want to learn more. So I got my MBA from Thunderbird School of Global Management, really big in international business. And so that was Thunderbird originally was an independent business school. Now it's part of ASU. And I got a chance to work on business projects all over the globe during that time. I learned Spanish as well, which I didn't know before, which is kind of rare in Arizona, actually. And that was a really pivotal experience. I ended up going into the corporate world after that and did a lot of projects in finance and customer analytics was really my area of concentration. Fast forward a few years, I was working in customer analytics and helping set some corporate metrics for an energy company, actually. And my sister had a difficult pregnancy. That was the first time that I had actually been close to sort of maternal health or had experienced it through the eyes of somebody else. And she had a super high risk pregnancy where she's on bed rest for months. And there were questions throughout the way as to whether she was going to be okay or not. That whole experience opened my eyes to the fact that pregnancy is not necessarily safe and that U.S. can be a really dangerous place. Despite all of our medical advances, it can be very dangerous to actually have a, a pregnancy here. So that plus working on the board of a, of a nonprofit in Guatemala that really focused a lot on maternal health and maternal health education for the people that it served in Antigua and the, the area there, that opened my eyes to the fact that there's a lot of room for innovation in maternal health. It bothered me and started keeping me up at night of how many women struggle to get safe health care during their pregnancies. And I decided to do something about it. Wow. Okay. So what was your undergrad degree in at Eller? It was in marketing, actually. I did marketing. And then at that time they had an international business certificate. So those were my areas of focus. And so you didn't really have any healthcare background at all. No. In fact, the only healthcare experience I had obviously was as a patient or seeing my family members go through the medical system. 
You know, it's funny that I was at Mayo the other day and we were talking about the second year's pitching ideas they had. And part of it was they weren't yet ensconced enough in the nuances of taking care of patients because they were second chairs. But the flip side is they have this brand new fresh eye experience. And it's funny how you can become ensconced and not see things that are in plain sight because that's just the way they are. So it's really cool you coming in from the outside with a fresh set of eyes. Yeah, I have definitely have taken the patient perspective as I've developed my company and developed our innovations, just because that's the perspective that I bring, frankly. The first product that we developed was our FDA cleared handheld ultrasound. It's called VistaScan. And initially that was intended for low resource settings. And when we're talking low resource settings, I'm talking about some of the places that I've lived and worked, places like Argentina, Guatemala, places in Africa. So like 50% of the world doesn't have access to radiology. And so that was initially kind of where we were thinking, but then time went on and we realized, wait, there are a ton of communities here in our own home country, our home community in some senses that don't have access. So having the outsider's perspective, I think has been helpful in seeing those realities. Wow. So I use the butterfly and a lot of people in emergency medicine use butterfly. Is that basically the similar thing? It's similar yet different. How's it different? So similar in the fact that you're using your cell phone, uh, plugging in an ultrasound probe and being able to image anytime, anywhere at the bedside and transit uh, at home, anywhere in between. The difference is sort of our approach. So Butterfly is an amazing innovation. They are mostly focused on generating AI from the images that they are creating. We are taking a different approach. We're literally just focused on getting imaging to where it doesn't exist yet. So we're not taking the AI approach with the images themselves. Okay, so let's talk about the company. So your sister had a high-risk pregnancy. What did she struggle with that gave you that light bulb moment? The fact that she was bed bound, she's told you're on bed rest, you're at home, but then, oh, you've got to go to these doctor's appointments all the time. And how scared that she felt during that process, it felt dangerous to actually go to the doctor. And the fact that the medical imaging equipment is really, really great at the medical facility, yet we have awesome internet connections for the most part in our community. We all have cell phones. There are more cell phones than humans on the planet right now. So why couldn't we leverage that in order to make her feel safer and get the same information to her physicians in the same amount of time faster? That was the impetus for thinking, wow, this is something everybody should have access to. Okay. So you came up with this idea. Then what did you do? So then we got it FDA cleared. We did feasibility testing. We worked with different types of medical specialists. We worked with folks in emergency medicine. We worked with folks in the maternal health area. We worked with folks in cardiology and kidney specialties, but it was so broad. The problem with ultrasound and also the benefit is that there's so many different things that you can do with it. Whereas other companies, I think are more focused on the cardiology space and kidney care and some of the say bigger markets. We kept being told, well, if you focus on maternal health, that's really a niche and it's not big enough and there's not enough money in it. We decided to double down on maternal health, especially as we got our FDA clearance right as COVID happened. And it was just kind of a no brainer because the awareness for maternal health crisis became much more broad across our country and the disparities in maternal health and the need to really double down and serve this particular population became very apparent to us. I looked on your website. Are you a B to C or a B to B? Yes. Oh. So yeah, that kind of brings us to like what, how our company has evolved. So we started off as B2B where we created an imaging tool that was specifically for clinicians and low resource settings. Yet fast forward to the middle of the pandemic, I had a high risk pregnancy myself and I got preeclampsia in the postpartum period. And I 
had no idea, A, that this was going to happen to me. And B, I had no idea how to communicate my information to my provider. Instead, I was having to go to the doctor's office multiple times a week just for blood pressure readings. And you know, I'm, obviously I'm putting myself in danger at, at that point because it was the height of the pandemic. I was putting my family and also to be honest, my providers just by being in there. And I was like, why can't we communicate this information in a digital way? And also like, how do I know how high my blood pressure should be? There was never any follow-up about that. So hence we develop our app, which is our patient facing app. And this brings us to the B2C component. And now we have a B2C area of our business where we're dealing with customers, providing them with a maternal health app where they can track and log their maternal health, their vitals, their symptoms, their mood, and any questions they have for their doctor, they can do that digitally. Then they can also communicate that with their doctor with remote patient monitoring platform that we have. So who pays for it? So you're an average income woman in any city and you say, I want my first baby. I'm scared to death. I want it all. How do they sign up and who pays? Yeah. The app that we have is actually free. So it's free to anybody that has access to iOS or Google play store. Frankly, you can download and just use it as a tracker. If you want pregnancy wellness coaching, if you want more handholding, then we provide that as well. So the patient can pay for pregnancy wellness coaching where they can meet with a nurse practitioner and discuss their specific questions and concerns that they don't have time to talk to their doctor about. Their doctor meets with them 10 to 14 times during pregnancy for 15 minutes. Providers also pay for the remote patient monitoring platform where they can see their patient's data in real time as well. It's billable. Have you ever thought about having it where Patients in a remote area gets an ultrasound probe to lease and you use an AI model to say, move probe here, move probe here. Definitely. Yep. Is that, is that coming down the pike? Potentially. Yeah. One of the things that makes us different is the fact that we are connected more to the patient. So compared to other handheld ultrasound companies that are around, they're all focused on the clinician, but we're focused on improving the connection between patient and clinician. So integrating our three platforms together gets us there. We've got the patient app, we've got a remote patient monitoring platform, and we also have the ultrasound. So yes, the answer to your question is yes. Having the patient have access to an ultrasound probe, and I can see the good and the bad is I can see some women who are so absolutely paranoid about being pregnant that they're on the thing 24-7, sending these images out. And then I also can see the benefit of it. So you don't have to go into your OB's office necessarily. You can literally dip your own urine for protein, check your blood pressure and do an ultrasound. What's your thought on that? My thought is that is definitely the way of the future, especially once we can get the world of billing and insurance wrapped around that idea and everybody's supportive in the medical system and medical community. I think that is definitely the way of the future. I think in like 15, 20 years, that's going to be what happens. 15 or 20 years. Wow. Well, that's, that's kind of pessimistic. Oh, I don't disagree. It's kind of pessimistic though. It is. While we're in this huge maternal health crisis in our country, and like this is the most dangerous and expensive place in the developed world to give birth, we also have systems that are set up in order to maximize revenue. We also have an OB crisis on top of this, where 49% of US counties do not have a practicing OBGYN. So there's like a confluence of factors that are coming together that make me think that realistically that that model will take some time. You know, what's interesting is I could argue this both ways, but I think the challenge for OBs is they're already an incredibly high risk group as far as medical legal challenges. I think if I were them, I would be like, I do not want 
this deluge of data coming in from patients that I'm going to be responsible for and all of a sudden say, well, I can't really see that image. So I can't be held responsible to make a call that I have horrible images on. I wonder how you get around that. I think it's twofold. Number one, on the ultrasound piece, like with the Alara principle and, you know, kind of like as low as like reasonably acceptable amount of ultrasounds for patients. And then also at the same time, being able to limit the tools so that you as a physician could get the data that you need, but you don't get surplus information because surplus does nobody good. And then obviously building in AI and machine learning to help manage the data and filter it so that it is relevant and the most urgent things bubble up to the top for physicians. That's, I think, how we manage this in a long-term sustainable way. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there has to be a machine learning component with it because otherwise it'll be a deluge of data that no one can get through. And you're right, there has to be able to be reimbursed for it, or if they're on a fixed capitated plan, feel comfortable enough that they can divert some of it to this, this process, not see the patients in their office. Definitely. In what you've learned and studied and from your fresh eye perspective, why is it the U.S. developed country has a relatively poor statistics for maternal fetal health? I think we have a number of different factors that are working against us. I sort of touched on the fact that we have this OB shortage. Half of our country is located in a place that doesn't have access to a practicing OB. And I think that is a, a huge part of the crisis. If you don't have access to trained specialists, or you have to travel in some cases, two hours each way to get to your prenatal appointments, which is not rare um, in our, especially in our research, then that's an issue. You know, getting timely help is an issue. I think also the fact that, you know, we, we have to be honest about the fact there are huge disparities in our country. Um, racial disparities, as well as economic, socioeconomic disparities when it comes to maternal health and outcomes. And until we can be honest with ourselves as to why those disparities exist, I think that we are going to continue to have a maternal health crisis. And I think the third piece also is it's pretty difficult to be a doctor in the U.S. these days, from what I understand, and from the folks that are on our team that work with us. So many doctors are overworked. The burnout rate is really high, especially in certain specialties like OB. You touched on the fact already about how liability just comes into play in such a major way, especially with maternal health. You're carrying liability for like 21 years for two patients, essentially. All of those factors make it a very burdensome proposition to be able to profitably, safely, and effectively care for patients that are honestly increasingly sick. I don't know why anybody would want to be an OB. And I loved delivering kids when I was in medical school and a few times in residency, but yeah. you're right. It's total high risk and it's a challenging specialty to begin with. So you're absolutely right. And it'll be probably an increasing shortage in the years to come, I would suspect. I think so too, which all the more reason why we need to apply more technology to this particular specialty to be innovative in solving these issues that are coming up. Yeah, I totally agree. What has been the most interesting thing that you've learned during this process? Because you came into a whole new sector that was totally new to you. The most interesting thing that I've learned is through a number of National Science Foundation grants that we've been awarded with along the way, we've also done programs that are really specific to customer discovery. We did a program with National Science Foundation called i where we went and we did customer interviews. We did almost 150 of them in six weeks. We did that multiple times. We've done that process multiple times. And the thing that I learned the most recently in doing that is we 
specifically narrowed in on maternal health, the experience for the patients and the, the experience for the providers. And what we learned was everybody has a story. Pregnancy is a really stressful process for everybody and nobody comes out of that unscathed, both patient and provider. And having the compassion to understand the anxieties that patients go into the process with, and then also just how much of a burden, how high stress the field is for the providers has helped us to understand how we can get these two groups to communicate better. And also, frankly, how we can make it more efficient for providers and, and lower cost. Yeah, I wonder, I don't have to think about this, just other offshoots you can have from this to one, lower the anxiety and stress for both of them, and also lower the chance of medical error. I mean, obviously the earlier you catch things, the better off everybody is. Definitely, yeah. That's actually one of the reasons why we developed our patient app is that we can get people on board being very cognizant about their health earlier on in the process, and that can help lead to better outcomes. So if somebody is logging and tracking their pregnancy health, like their blood pressure, their blood glucose, from the moment they find out about their pregnancy, they are so much more efficient at advocating for themselves. They ask better questions to their provider. They use their provider's time better. They're able to educate themselves better through the process. And so that has been an important learning that we found as well. Getting patients to be a part of the process is important. Right. I still see when I'm on the reservations, there is a ton of women who come in, seems like one or two a day with zero prenatal care in labor. And part of that is access and resources. Clearly part of that's just patient education and medical literacy. And then part of it's just the economic disparity they face there. And those are going to be hard things to tackle, even with the best of efforts. 100%. Absolutely. Well, and also infrastructure on the reservation, not having access to consistent cell phone or Wi-Fi. That is one of the biggest barriers to implementing like telemedicine effectively or programs like ours, like remote patient monitoring. And so this sort of touches on how one of the other reasons why we have this maternal health crisis, it's not just maternal health. We see it in maternal health, but it's really in general, kind of like an economic and healthcare and health disparities crisis as a whole in our country right now. Do you think that the market you are trying to target will be the ones who ultimately use this? Because it seems to me that what you've described is a product for the affluent to give them peace of mind as opposed to the lower SES to offer them some degree of care. Yes. About 53% of our folks that are on our platform today are actually Medicaid customers. And I'm just speaking about remote patient monitoring and our patient app, not ultrasound related. So yes, there are quite a few affluent folks that use this and do receive lots of peace of mind. But on the other side, there are a number of Medicaid folks that are still gaining benefit from, we provide patient education, like research-backed articles. We have a huge article repository and that hopefully help stem the tide of people going to TikTok for the medical information, which is what we see a lot right now, frankly, less so Instagram and Facebook, but definitely lots of like med TikTok by being able to have a forum for people to monitor their vitals for free, that at least is one less conversation that they need to have with their healthcare provider. And that's one more conversation their healthcare provider can talk with them about something else with that limited time that they have together. Right. I mean, if you're able to monitor that and blood sugar, as you mentioned, protein in urine, glucose in urine, weight, huge, huge impact. Yeah. 
what we have seen so far in early times, we've only launched our app to the public. Uh, it's only been out for about 10 months for the general public to use. And it is a freemium model. So you're right. The affluent ones are the higher level tier where you get the extra coaching, et cetera, and you get the extra set of eyes on you through your postpartum recovery three months through. But when we've done surveys of our current customer base, over 40% of people say they actually feel safer in pregnancy just by having access to this kind of technology. That's the first step. And next, we will be starting to measure outcomes and see really where and how this moves the needle. What's been the hardest part for you so far? What was your kind of aha moment? I always say my 3 a.m. ceiling fan talks. What's been your ceiling fan talk? There's so much that we can do with the technology and there's so much we have on our roadmap that we want to accomplish. And yet maternal health continues to be in many people's minds, a niche compared to other medical specialties. Uh, there's just now starting to be lots of, lots more non-dilutive funding available, but traditionally this realm of, and I hate this term, but I'm going to use it anyways, femtech does receive less attention. You know, women, there, there are fewer research dollars going towards women's health as we've seen through time. And there's a huge report that came out about that this past week. So one of the biggest challenges is making it known that this is a problem, that maternal health is a problem, and that there, there's economic opportunity in innovation in this space. And communicating that economic opportunity to people that historically haven't been aware of it has been the biggest challenge so far. Interesting. Yeah, you would think that given the rate of birth in the U.S., investors and others will look at this as, oh, hell yeah, this is a wide open market. And I've heard the term femtech before. Mm -hmm. Why you said it, it's something pejorative almost like, oh, femtech, but is it because you're in femtech, has that made it more challenging for you, do you think? That's what I'm inferring. It is. I think even just having to have the heading of femtech, having to even just have that term in the vernacular is a problem, frankly. I mean, women's health is health and women's healthcare is healthcare. So given how many fewer investment dollars are directed towards this realm of femtech compared to other areas, I think that may perpetuate problems for folks that are in the industry dealing with periods all the way through menopause and geriatrics. Well, I mean, it's kind of frankly stupid. It even has a name. I mean, you don't hear of mentech. Exactly. Yeah, that's kind of ridiculous. I agree with you. Okay, yeah. so that's been a challenge. What else? Fundraising because of the moniker has been a challenge? For some folks, it has been. But for us, we have taken the non-traditional route. We've definitely gone really hard with the non-dilutive path. So we've gotten grants from Department of Health and Human Services, from the National Science Foundation, Flynn Foundation, Roddenberry Foundation. And so there are lots of non-dilutive opportunities that we have very astutely taken advantage of, and that's really helped us move our business forward. Wow, that's very cool. What advice do you have? As I mentioned before we started, there'll be people listen to this and say, wow, I want to be here when I grow up, even if they're already grown up. What advice do you have for people who have an idea want to start down this path? Because, you know, most ideas die with the owner. Definitely. So twofold. First, we took the path that I don't recommend taking, which would be we went the hardest way first, which was an FDA 510k oh. clearance medical and software device, right? As our first product. And having previously, I hadn't gone through an FDA clearance process before. I didn't have experience dealing with a quality system, things like that. And so I would definitely say, if you're considering innovation, think of the innovation that is easier to get to market and sort of I don't want to say least regulated, but don't put yourself through a horrendous regulatory path as your first path. It takes longer. There's a huge learning curve and it's a lot more expensive to do that. Yeah, I totally agree. Going through the FDA is never easy. Yeah. 
we learned a lot and that set us up for a good foundation. So that now as we develop uh, additional products and as FDA's guidance on AI and machine learning is changing so rapidly, we're able to keep up much better now because we have that FDA experience. So in a way it's helped us, but having developed a patient app first, I think would have been the preferred route if possible. Yeah. How long did the process take you to go through the FDA? So it took us quite a while. We did an FDA market survey, a regulatory review before even doing this, determined the predicates, et cetera, you know, all the testing that's required, all that is sort of separate from the actual FDA 510k process. In total, it probably took us with testing and everything, minimum eight months. Wow. Actually, I would thought you were say 18 months. That, that actually is pretty fast. From, it from seems my, slow. My experience, of, of course. But yeah, I think from my experience, I've heard a lot more horror stories where it goes back and back and back and back before it gets FDA approved. Yeah. I agree with you about that may not have been the best way to enter a market, but you're right. It built a hell of a lot of resilience and you also have the hardest part done first. So in some respects, not a bad outcome. So, you yeah. know, I look at back at what you've described, what I've read about you, you saw a problem. Your solution was a combination of patient-facing app to embrace them and give them some source of uh, information and counseling if they so choose, and then also a device that where they can increase access for providers in places without uh, ultrasounds, for example. That's it, exactly. Absolutely. Yep. What do you see your exit look like and when? Well, when could be any time. What we understand is when you have a phase two SBIR award that apparently increases your visibility towards potential acquisition. And we do have, we are currently working on a phase two SBIR award right now with National Science Foundation. We're open any time to that possibility, right? But we have a lot to build in terms of AI and machine learning on our platform. And I'd love to do that before our exit, obviously. So anytime I would say maybe in the next 24, 48 months is probably going to be when our exit is. And in terms of acquisition, there are so many folks looking towards purchasing, frankly, and not having to build in-house their machine learning algorithms. And having that sort of at the ready as a package to be able to hand off to a much larger entity could be very attractive, especially in the telemedicine space, which is growing so fast. And there are so many opportunities there, especially for more quote unquote niche products. Right. Is your AI product based upon reading ultrasound images? Or it is not, but we can go into that in more detail in a future episode. Fair enough. Now I'm starting to think what it would be based upon. What's the timeline for that, do you think? In terms of acquisition or just in terms no, of like no, in terms ready to market? Of completion of that AI project. Oh, well, hopefully in the next 18, 24 months, for sure. That's where we're shooting, but anything could happen. Hopefully, maybe even sooner. Very good. Well, where can people find out more about you and more about what you're doing? So if they want to learn more about maternal health crisis, et cetera, we always, we're posting our new research, our white papers, et cetera, on our blog, which is on Medium, where Imagine Solutions Tech. If people want to learn about what we're building and be a part of our journey with the Journey Pregnancy, our app, the Journey Clinic, our remote patient monitoring platform, and Vista Scan, our FDA cleared handheld ultrasound, they can go to Imagine, E-M-A-G-I-N-E-S-T dot com, which is our website. Perfect. And we'll make sure we put all that in the notes. Well, Courtney, this has been a blast. Thank you. Congratulations. You are blazing a new path. And that's so impressive that you came in from outside of healthcare to do it. So congratulations. Thank you so much, John. Thank you for having me. And thanks for your attention to maternal health. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. This has been a blast. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for another episode of Entrepreneurs Rx. We will see you again soon. Courtney, best of luck. Thank you. 
for listening to another great edition of Entrepreneur Rx. To find out how to start a business and help secure your future, go to johnshufeldmd.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.